Hey y'all, welcome to the Legendary Tales podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bloor, and I'm joined, as always, by Isadora Martin-Dye. Don't say as always, you're leaving. I'm still, I'm still a co-host on, you're still, we're still both co-hosts on this show, regardless of whether or not I'm in, on the compound's property. Maybe. I mean, I'm are, just are you, saying are you that planning if I'm on recording an episode by yourself while we're gone, I'm just saying that if I can't get the research done on <sighs> Dyatlov, Dyatlov, I might have to do this on my own. I mean, based on my reactions through most of the solo episodes, like you could do it without me, and people probably wouldn't even notice the difference. I'll cough, snivel, and just go, uh huh. Just go, yeah, uh huh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can just pull my audio from any, yeah. any of the episodes and just drop it in where appropriate. Uh huh. Yeah. All right. So if you're all confused, um. As you're listening to this, we're probably back, actually. No, you're not. We wouldn't be back? No, you get back on, like, the Wednesday or Thursday. So we'll be back the day after this episode yeah. goes out. Having completed Having 100 com- miles of walking Hadrian's Wall, which means we have a topic for the week after. Yeah, which is, uh, by law, we'll have to talk about Hadrian's Wall. But we, so, don't, we don't know if it's going to be on this podcast or the It'll other be one. on the, probably both. Oh, my God. Ooh, what the re- my chest speaking re- today. A return to history through a house. Yeah, so by law, Adam's next week topic will be Hadrian? the legendary Hadrian's Wall. Yeah. I could do Hadrian's Wall as a thing. Yeah, I could do. Um, Hadrian's fairly boring, actually. Is he? Yeah. Well, anyway, so if you guys are confused, I'll give a quick quick rundown of what's going on. Uh, ben and I, Ben being Isadora's husband and my cousin, are heading out tomorrow morning. Tomorrow being the 29th of September. Being about nine days before you listen to this. Yes. Um, to complete the first ever Rambling Golf Charity Tour Challenge, which is something that Ben and I and Dora and mother, her mother and our friend Dan came up with. I was actually not in the room with it when you this were? happened. I you, I, nope. I thought it happened at supper and we were all there. I wasn't in the room when this happened. Oh, well, I, um, I might have kibushed this idea because <laughs> I think it's insane. We're going to go hike Hadrian's Wall, which in itself is only 85 miles, but... With the added miles that... So we're going to go hike Hadrian's Wall, and we're also playing six golf courses along its length, equaling 100 miles total walked and 100 mi- hundred holes of golf played total over about 10 days, I believe. Yeah, and called. they're doing it for Rowcroft Hospice and, and the Golf Foundation. The Golf Foundation, which are two charities that are that we're very stoked to be partnering with. We, we really like what both of them do. Us, Rowcroft Hospice is, is very local to us here in Devon, and the Golf Foundation is... They're really pushing boundaries on making golf more accessible to people with different skill levels and different socioeconomic backgrounds and, and all that stuff, which we think and is And ability fantastic. levels. And ability levels and everything. And we think yeah. that's great. Um, so if you are interested in donating or looking at any of the media that we have put together for this trip, uh, go to our UK Virgin Money Giving page. I believe it's ukvirginmoneygiving.co.uk backslash 100 miles, 100 holes. Or go to the Swing Dumb on Instagram and you can find. One, yeah, and you can follow the link through the bio yeah. there. Um, they take US dollars as well. So if you're from America, they will absolutely do the conversion for you. And we really appreciate it, yes, guys. This um, is like a huge cause that's very, very close to all our hearts. And it's actually taken up a lot of our time. Yeah, it's been very... That's why we didn't have an episode go out a couple yeah. weeks ago was because it was just... It's an intensive planning process and, and it's it, going to be it, an intensive challenge. And it really them. came on very quickly. But yeah. that's not what we're here to talk about. This week, Dora and I dove into botany. And, yeah, and randomly. We're, and we're talking about plants. So mm-hmm. you can you can hit the deck running whenever you're ready. Okay, so I am first up. And actually, on this thing, I guess, botany, plants, and the history of gardens is something that's really interesting to 
me and something I've done quite a lot of work in, particularly since my degree was in history. And I looked at Hampton Court Palace, which is if I know a lot of you guys are from the US and if you come over to the UK, if you go to London, absolutely, you have to visit Hampton Court Palace. Ooh, we maybe have, we still haven't done that. We still haven't done that. Maybe if you're doing Hadrian's Wall, I'll do Hampton Court. Okay. Um, and it's my favorite, favorite place pretty much in the whole wide world. And it's just a little bit of a trip outside London. It's not as touristy as some of the other places, but it's so epic. Mm. And they have amazing gardens. And that got my interest in gardening, history of gardening, I guess, because actually when it comes to gardening, I'm pretty nonplus. Um, <laughs> but my history of gardening interest and... Adam even now knows famous gardeners because of... Two, at least. I can name them. Go on. Uh, Capability Brown, yeah. who, I mean, is a like a mad scientist when it comes to, to gardening and the things that he did. And will absolutely be an episode. Um, on there. I, I will certainly do an episode. And Monty Don hosted that that program, right? Yeah. Monty Don is Ben's favorite gardener and, and by proxy has become a, a just a staple of like... Of easy, of easy watching television. Um, yeah. No, I don't like gardening. I think gardening is, uh, I, I, I'm, not my, it's not, I'm not the biggest fan of gardening is, is, is how I'm going to end that. But I, I do like when. You I like do, eating the food we garden. I do. But I mean like, I mean like what Capability Brown did or what oh. Monty Don do, which are generally more decorative gardens. But I do like watching the Chelsea Flower Show. And like I said, when, because Capability Brown, if I remember correctly, was well known for the sort of like using the natural landscape and like, it was like landscape. It was landscape gardening, gardening on like an epic on a map on like acres and acres of, yeah. of and it was it's amazing. So we'll definitely do some of the craziest capability brown gardens oh, at yeah. some point, but that's not what I'm talking about today. What I'm going to talk about today is plant hunting. Okay, and I have so one of my real distinct memories of plant hunting. I hadn't. I don't know why I'm saying I haven't got much interest in the history of plant hunters because I don't think that that's something that people generally have an interest in. Some people might. But I was watching an episode of Gardener's World and it was about two plant hunters who were looking for irises yep. and various other bits and pieces. And they had been interviewed for Gardener's World and then at the end of Gardener's World, it said... Oh, yeah, we watched this episode together, didn't we? Yeah, and do you remember it said at the end of Gardener's World, this is dedicated to the memory? Yeah, it was in memoriam. Yeah, in memoriam. And... And I got totally confused as to what had happened because this was not recorded that long. Like, it wasn't... The, the episode we were watching was a recent episode. I think it wasn't this... It wasn't recorded in 2020. It was a few years old. Yeah, this is a couple of... Yeah, yeah. when we saw But it, still, it wasn't like they... they We were like, well, they couldn't have been old enough to die. Yeah, like this was classes. not... Um, anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story of these two and then I'm going to tell you... A lot more about another plant hunter. Okay. Um, but it hit me really hard. And it was Rod and their names were Rod and Rachel Saunders. And they owned, they held dual citizenship, I believe, between the UK and South Africa. And they owned a seed company where you could buy the seeds of the plants that they had uh, found and discovered. And they were very, very well respected. And they, I think their seed company was called Silver Hill Seeds, um, and it is still up and running. And they uh, would go out, and they would go and find new new plants. Um, 
they were actually out hiking, having recorded Gardner's World. And I read a very sad article where the producer of Gardner's World said he takes full responsibility for what happened to them because he recommended that they went to a place that he had heard had this rare orchid, I think, mm-hmm. that they were looking for. And while they were away, um, 150 miles from where they were last seen, they found the Land Cruiser with heavy blood stains in the boot. And a few days later, they found 5,000 pounds had been emptied from their bank account and nothing had been heard from them. And then a little bit after that, they did find um, their decomposing bodies. And they had been... So they've arrested four men in association with it. And they originally said it was a terror attack. Mm -hmm. And there was the area had a terror alert on it, but I guess it had a terror alert on it for a very long time and nothing had happened, so nobody really thought it was much of an issue. Okay. Um, and when and, the producer said to, to yeah, go to the spot Yeah, it whatever. was just not really, no one really took it seriously, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did find an ISIS flag at the premises of the people they arrested okay. and ISIS-related propaganda. But generally, actually, they don't know that it was a terrorist attack, more just a robbery right. by terrorists, which is an important distinction, yeah. I guess, to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just really devastating. These They were born, um, I believe, they were in born in the 50s, early 60s, so they were not. These were... Middle people, age. middle-aged middle people at the top of their game, not taking risky not really doing anything that would be considered risky, certainly not out there preaching, not doing anything that Mm -hmm. would be considered making them a target. Um, Unfortunately, they were a target. And I think their passing has left a lot of people, I I have obviously no personal connection to them, but I read a lot about them after I watched the episode of Gardener's World and in preparation for this. And the impact that they seem to have had on the gardening community and the impact that their death seems to have had on the gardening community is overwhelming Mm. and it made me interested in plant hunters and actually the risks they took and why they took them um and it isn't a new thing they're it these guys are only the latest in a string of plant hunters to die under unusual circumstances and we're going to kind of go into forest who is primarily my topic of who we're talking about Mm -hmm. today and another plant hunter and they're both in kind of the golden age of plant hunting which was around the victorian era and a bit earlier i'm going to give you a quick rundown on plant hunting and what it is um in the early european period it was really just generally trying to sort out plants around europe and then as the periods got later um most of what they were most of the reason why people were traveling was looking for silver, gold, mining, right? That was considered yeah. the valuable things when you traveled. If you were going to the New World, you were on a gold hunt. It wasn't until a little later through the Age of Enlightenment that people started to really understand that there could be more scientific stuff to learn about plants. Mm-hmm. Previous to this, they had started to gather plants because of medicinal purposes, because at this point that was where most of the medicine was coming from. And then in about the 1600s, 1700s, they started gathering plants for ornamental purposes. This is also around the period of the tulip 
mm. thing, which I think we've touched upon in this. Maybe. Um, and we, at some point, when it comes up naturally, we will certainly do an episode, or I will certainly do an episode on it, which is, and it falls to me, the tulip, the whole thing with tulips in the European economy uh, is doesn't fall under botany to me. <laughs> no. Because tulips were the thing, but really it was just the first example of boom and bust yeah. in a trade and speculative, speculative trading. Um, by about the 1700s, 1800s, they were in North America uh, looking at planting and plants and things like that. Um, 18, 1900s, they started going to Japan and China and then Australia. So by the time we get to the kind of early 1900s, pretty much as plant hunters been sent by the biggest botanical gardens all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just the Brits that were doing this, although Kew Gardens was one of the big, I guess, uh, sponsors okay. of plant exploration, mm. but the French were doing it, and there were even a couple of Americans. Funnily enough, a lot of Scots, um, and I couldn't find out why, mm. but, um, and even now, people are still doing it because they're looking into more plant genetic engineering. They're trying to figure out how to, I mean, now it becomes about feeding a growing population yeah. and finding the plants that are going to provide kind of most bang for your buck in the sense of feeding your population and that are easily genetically modified. It's rice. The answer is rice. Rice. Um, and rice being a big thing. Also, breadfruit and a hmm. few other different things are, are, are big things right now. Cool. All right, so I'm going to talk to you about George Forrest. He was one of the most productive plant collectors <laughs> of all time. And I think it's great that his name is Forrest. It helps. Mm -hmm. And he went on seven major expeditions, introduced hundreds of species to Western cultivation. and But unlike most of them, he never really wrote his story down. So when they went out, they would often give them little books mm -hmm. uh, or they gave them little books and they had to record everything. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of these diaries. Uh, by the way, this just made me more interested in plant oh, hunters. Cool. I, yeah. Which, uh, yeah. I, it's great for people to be able to read those things. Yeah. There's so many first-hand accounts. Yeah of people's, I mean, the mundane from like, I'm sitting on a train and yeah. I saw a flower out the window that I didn't recognize in, in Lancaster. Mm. Or I was totally bored on my train trip through France on my way to Scotland or, no, <laughs> Scandinavia. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, so it's really first-hand accounts of that and mm. a lot of them kept very, very thorough diaries, which is pretty yeah, that's awesome. exciting. One of the major sources I'm going to use on this is actually George for a letter that he wrote, um, which is about 5,000 pages long. It's a bit like your thing yesterday. I am not reading oh, the yeah. whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But the other sources I used were plantspeopleplanet.org.au. R, here's my RBG, not just RBG, RBGE, personal and project stories, which was kind of cool. There's a lot of people talking about their favorite people. Um, plantexplorers.com. The Guardian and the Mail. Okay. Guardian and the Mail primarily being obviously the one we just did, the more modern yes, 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 yes. disappearances. So um, he was born on March 13th in 1873. He was educated primarily in Scotland. He actually apprenticed to a chemist. So kind of that same thing, using plants for medicinal. Yeah. Um, and... 
he was really, that was his major interest initially was medicinal plants. Mm-hmm. He got, uh, his parents passed away and he used his inheritance to start traveling. He went to Australia first for the gold rush, not primarily to look for plants, but to look for gold. Yes. Didn't have a great success there. He was there for like 10 years. And as far as I can figure oh, out, really never found any gold. That's so insane. Cause I know that the gold rush, it's sort of, I, I always feel like it's portrayed in this way that like they go out and you find it in like three days and then you're rich forever. But it's like people spent their lives looking for gold. And yeah, and he was there for it. 10 years and never really found any gold. Didn't do very well and came back in 1902. So then he was employed by the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. They, he was really impressive. He had no formal plant training at this point, although there wasn't a ton of formal plant training at this point. Um, But they really liked him and they wanted to sponsor an expedition to Western China. Um, A quote here, this was the sort of challenge that the rugged Scot had always wanted. I think everything I read about him is this dude was not to be. Yeah. Like he was an Indiana Jones. Yeah. yeah this yeah. was not like a nutty guy. He wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, he yeah. was not like someone sniveling in his books, like making pretty, drawing delicate pictures of. Yeah. Plants. This was a guy running away from boulders and. Getting in the dirt. Yeah. So he was also, I mean, they don't say this anywhere, but he has got to have been seriously intelligent. Because it seems like whatever he turned his hat to, with the exception of panning for gold, he <laughs> succeeded. So he went to Yunana. Yunana? Y-U-N-N-A-N. I mean, yeah, I believe that you're saying it correctly. Okay. Where? Which is a province in China. Okay. Um, and when he got there, he actually spent quite a lot of time there making, uh, getting to know people in that province. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't immediately come in and go off hunting. He actually learned the language. He made friends. He really assimilated to the culture. How long was he in? He was there on and off for decades. Okay. Okay. Um, But he took about, from what I can figure out, he took about a year of just staying in this region. And he must have really bonded with the people and they must have bonded with him because much later or quite a lot later, he paid for himself, he paid to inoculate thousands of the locals against smallpox. Okay. Um, he's a good guy too. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. this is not like this is not one of those ones where we're talking about the crazy prophet or anyone. This is like a good, hardworking, resourceful yeah, dude. guy. And a lot of the personal stories I've read on him for people who are plant hunters and botanists, this is like their hero. So is he like a pretty big inspiration? Yeah, he's like the guy that they wanna they wanna be. They want to be. Um, They're Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. And him, he was with 17 local collectors, um, and he started making friends. There were some French people out there too. And he started really assimilating and collecting a lot of stuff, and these collectors would take him deep into different areas mm-hmm. to go and get unusual plants. plants. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, however, during this, there was a political hotbed building up in China. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a whole, there were these things called the llamas. Okay. Who were warrior priests who went around torturing and killing any foreigners or local people who were perceived to have had or held or, or people who had had contact with foreigners. Okay. Um, 
So this is kind of the uh, cooking pot that I guess he's going into, mm -hmm. which is he's making friends with a small community, really doing everything he can. But at the same time, in a larger political scale, China is really cracking down on foreigners. Okay. Um, and in 1906, he started sending back to, stuff back to Britain, hundreds of pounds of seeds, thousands of roots, tubers and plants. He, um, and he was really, like, enjoying his job. However, then it went very wrong. So I'm going to read from extracts from a letter that he wrote about his first experience. So he'd been there about two years mm -hmm. and he was with these French guys. And then I'm going to read you some of the stuff that he found was happening. To begin this letter in such a way as to enable you to follow the course of events, I must take you back to the date of my last letter, the 13th of July. As you may remember, I mentioned then that we had received word that the Lamas of Honpu, a place situated about a day's march northeast of Tesku, on the mitong Yanzid divide, had called out their adherents, Tibetan farmers and hunters. The number of Lamas in this gomba is comparatively small, only 100, but their influence over extends over a considerable tract of country and thus are now enabling them to collect quite a number of men. Unfortunately, the fathers and I, the fathers being the French plant hunters that yeah. had gone, I guess they were there as healers and religious men as well, did not attach importance to this report as we ought to. In the face of so many conflicting rumors, at the times we had found it difficult to sift false from what was authentic. If we had taken seriously what we heard, we would have vacated long before. As it is, the above news was the doubling, or the above news did was the doubling of our sentries at the ropes and up the river. Some really cool pictures, by the way, of how they got across this river. Mm -hmm. They would actually hang the donkeys to ropes and right. like pull them across, okay. like zip line the donkeys yeah. across the river. Pretty cool. Very cool. So, really paralleling the previous deaths of Ron and Rachel, mm -hmm. which was they knew the area was turbulent and they didn't pay much heed to it. They yeah. just thought it was rumors and things. Um, and he goes on to talk about how anxious he was at that point for his plants. Um, he'd got a whole load of plant samples and seeds and things like that together. And he knew that in the event of him having to flee, he wouldn't be able to take them with him. And this was a year or two of his life, his life and yeah. his work. Mm -hmm. um, and of putting himself at considerable risk to gather these things. He tried to persuade some people to go on ahead without him mm -hmm. with the plant samples, but he was worried that it, it turns out that this was a lot of backstabbing and double crossing. And he even had an instinct then that if he sent someone ahead with the plant samples, they were never going to okay. make it there anyway. However, had affairs reached ahead on the 17th of July at two o'clock that morning, I was awakened by Pierre Dubard coming to my room with the news that the local town which was Antsuni, had been surrounded and was likely to fall at any moment. That the Bessé of Tresgrog had been acting as a traitor towards us all along, bringing us favorable results in the situation, merely that we might have a false sense of security and remain what we were. Some say that he had gone to the lengths of capturing and murdering runners on their way down with more information for us. So 
they start prepping to leave. Mm. The French gentlemen decide that they want to stand and make a fight and fight against yeah the llamas or the llamas, and it pushes their leaving by about a day while they have this debate. Yeah. Um, and actually, as the people are approaching them, like, as the llamas are approaching mm. is when the two French gentlemen are finally like, you know what? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they started to flee. By large offerings, this is back to him, his words, by large offerings of silver, I managed to get some of my servants to promise to carry some of my specimen seeds and my papers. Um, we packed them all, but they were all abandoned when the llamas attacked us. We had everything prepared for flight. And Pierre, there's two Pierres, Pierre Brondacchi, Brondec and Pierre Dubard. And they were mounted and he was walking. And we were with a lot of heavily armed Christian Tibets. Our progress was slow as the path was difficult and dangerous, being only a track of one to two foot in breadth, running along the right bank of the Mekong River at various heights, where at many points the slightest slip would have meant injury or death. About 9 p.m. we reached Pat Tong, and the village seemed steeped in slumber. We had not gone further than half a mile before the signal, a peculiar Tibetan cry, had gone across the river. From that moment we were in deadly danger. As we knew, the llamas were somewhere on the other side and at any moment may cross the ropes and cut off our retreat. So there was another fight between the French and the French gentleman and Forrest. He really wanted to keep going in the dark. They wanted to settle for the night. And reluctantly, he agreed to make camp for the night. And just as they were decamping, Bessie of Chambry came up to see them and he assured them that if they continued down the route that they were going, they would certainly be captured and killed. So he offered to procure guides to be able to give them a safer route through. Those guides didn't show up until halfway through the next day. Mm -hmm. And it Aren't was... they aware that he was betraying them at... This is a different Bessie. Oh, okay. I don't know what the title of Bessie is, mm -hmm. but there's two different ones. Okay. This guy, they describe as being half drunk and a fool um, somewhere. Um, so he does say I was strongly suspicious of this man because he showed up mostly drunk. Mm. Um, however, um, they he did provide these guides, but yes, as predicted, pretty much led them straight into trouble. Okay. He says about 10 miles northward, we could see a large column of smoke ascending and realized that Tezuku, where they had guess had been heading, had been burnt and that probably the llamas were already pursuing us. Here I made my last attempt to hasten the movements of the fathers, but without avail. Both seemed to have entirely given up hope. When I saw my efforts were useless, I pushed on ahead with one of my servants, Anton by name, and commenced into the desert into, uh, through the descent into the next valley. About 1 p.m., we reached the bottom of the gully and crossed the stream which had ran by it, a fallen tree forming a natural bridge. The breadth of this water at this point was about 60 foot by 10 foot deep. The current was very strong, as is the case with all the tributaries, and the fathers were some distance behind me. Um, under the circumstance, I was disciplined for food, so while the fathers stopped to lunch, 
I took a position at an elevation on the south side of the stream where I had a clear view of the path that we'd just traveled down. Um, really quickly, actually, someone did make the effort to track down Anton, mm. who firstly confirmed all of this story. But also, it appears that he continued, even after all of this, he actually continued on plant collecting. Okay. So he was a native, but he actually, like, you know. After a short time, about a 45, 45, 40 or 50 men came tearing along the ridge full speed, and I immediately gave the alarm. Even then, I was not believed. <laughs> um, oh, my Lord. I know. These guys are driving me insane. I know. Immediately, all was confusion, and from that moment on, it was every man for himself. The last, and then he goes on to say, the last I saw of the Piers was them flying in different directions. Everyone split up. Um, and he said he chose to go downstream. And it was a race, a frightful race I shall never forget. And how I escaped death, I cannot say. The, plate, the path was in most places formed of brackets in the faces of the cliff, scores of feet above the stream which thundered beneath. At these parts, it consisted merely of two eight-inch logs, slippery and rotten from the continual moisture and spray. Yet over these I went racing, as if it had been an ordinary good road. Towards the end of the valley, I was shut in by precipitous cliffs, and at its junction with the Mitong, the path took a bend, and as I turned this, I came face to face with seven lamas and Tibetan soldiers, all armed. There were, I guess I can't read it, because it's got like a whole load of question marks and brackets, <laughs> yards distant, and instantly spotted me and gave chase. I was in despair. I knew I could be shot, down with a, and I kept shooting my rifle behind them. Sorry, I guess that part must have been hard for them to copy. Mm. Um, but I, I feared there would be others behind. In that case, the slightest delay meant being caught in a regular trap, and the path was along the face of a cliff. Therefore, I turned and fled in the direction I had come. Before I reached the corner, I made a jump into the scrub on the stream side of the path and continued my descent a few hundred feet. Till I reached a suitable place for making a stand, got my cartridge belts off and placed ready to hand to hand, and then waited further developments. I heard them rush past on the path above, but they couldn't find my tracks, and I supposed therefore they had made decided that I had taken the ridge and gone south. I lay in hiding until evening, and then when the moon had risen, gained the path again and commenced the ascent of the ridge which formed the southern boundary of the gully. He goes on to talk about how he could see them in the distance, and he just hid. He slowly, in the dark, crawled along this cliff face of the river mm -hmm. um, for two nights. The third night, he ascended the ridge at a point further west, and he found that sentries were still blocking the way south. He started scavenging wheat um, that had perhaps been dropped by one of the things, and that was all he was eating. Um, and he says, uh, and lying asleep behind rocks and logs on the beds of the streams. And one day he was awakened by the sound of laughing and talking and looking up, I discovered 30 llamas in the act of crossing the stream 50 yards above my hiding place. By the end of day eight, I must have presented the most hideous spectacle, clothing hanging in rags and covered in mud, minus my breeches, faces and hands scarred and scratched with fighting my way through scrub in the dark feet ditto, and swollen, almost beyond the semblance of feet, shaggy back beard and a moustache, and I have no doubt the most terrified, hungry, and haunted expression on my face. Although my appearance must have been unique, I should very much like to have the gift that Burns talked of. I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, so, 
By the end of day eight, he made his way to a Lisu village, and it consisted of only four huts, and he managed, he says, I only had the strength to murmur one word before I collapsed. Fortunately, I had fallen amongst friends. The people immediately cooked for me and cleaned me and basically put him to get back together. He said he had diarrhea for more or less two months after this. Um, so, uh, and that was how he got found um, in this little village. And he stayed there until he was strong enough to Please. move, which took a while. Um, uh, four or five days, they hid him in the huts and fed him and looked after him. Mm. And then they started walking back to the Yemen province where mm. he had like more friends. Um, he said it rained the whole time that they were traveling back. It took them four days and they still kept coming across llamas and, and people. Soldiers and- yeah. Um, Another Bessie visited him at one point and actually brought him pork and chicken and eggs. And they were, he had, once he found the village of friends, like they managed to like uh, railroad, like traffic him back down into safety. And it turns out that this was, this was what had happened had he stayed. He talks about, I, I mean, he goes into great detail and devastating detail about how bitterly cold he was, how, I mean, he, was moments from death when he found mm-hmm. help, which I think, but then this was the alternative. Um, Pierre Bourneduc was cornered sometime during the second day after the attack and shot down while still alive, cut open and his heart torn out. Pierre Dubard managed to elude his pursuers till days four or five when he was captured. The llamas broke his arms above and below the elbows, tied his hands behind him back, his back and led him off in the direction of Tezuk. However, he became so exhausted that he begged them to kill them at once, on which they both struck him down with a sword. He was then cut open and his heart extracted before he died. Both bodies were beheaded and all the parts carried north. Mm. So, starvation. I'd probably, yeah, take that. Yeah. He returned back to England. Surprising. Surprising. But what is really surprising, and we're going to go back to an earlier page here, um is he returned back to England to sort out all the supply, all the samples that he'd already sent. Um, It didn't take him long to go back to exactly the same era. Um, And he also, uh, area. Uh, So that was in 1905. By 1908, he was back in the Johan area um, trying to collect more plants. I have to say that the next one was less productive because he, I guess, found a lot of the plants the first time. Um, in 1913, he found himself trapped in Dali during a mutiny, and he was saved by Chinese soldiers um, after he provided two weeks of medical assistance that he'd learned while being a chemist. Um, he really, like, I, don't, I, I mean, he did not. This was not a man. This was not what you would think of as like a. No, he definitely took his life into his own hands at several points. Yeah, I'm not sure that I admire him for it. There's a uh, the line between bravery and stupidity is very thin. Yes, particularly <laughs> if you go back. Yeah, um, he by about 1932 he um, started retiring. Started retiring. Yeah, he didn't do it very well because he was back in Teng Chong um, to do a final run when unfortunately he collapsed and died in the hills from a heart attack. Huh. Um, 
So, yeah, that was the pretty short, because I think he was only about 45, yeah. and very dramatic life of George Forrest. And it's a really cool letter. I mean, I guys, I know I read quite a lot of that letter out, but it was nothing compared to... How long it is. How long that letter is. Mm. And he's an amazing writer. It's a shame that he was one of the ones that didn't... Keep a diary. Keep a diary. Yeah. Um, and That was very easy to listen to. Yeah, he was really, and it was really easy to read and really got me wanting mm. to read more of the diaries. Uh, there's a, a British uh, diarist called Samuel Peps, Peeps, Peps, depending on where you're from. And it's one of my favorite things to read about Tudor period because he writes just quite candidly yeah. um, about his affairs and <laughs> stuff that was going on. And he had a loose relationship with the crown at that point. So there's the odd thing of him going to the palaces. So there's the odd thing of him going to the palaces, um, and it's quite a cool diary. And this made me realize that actually reading Plant Hunter's diaries might be a really interesting way to learn more about mm. this period of history that I don't know a ton about. All right, so I'm going to tell you about one last plant crime death thing. Cool. I will say that there was a guy who stole a whole load of plants from China to bring tea back. Mm which was an interesting, different take on it. Yes. Like, he was truly, like, Indiana Jonesing his way in and out of China in disguises and stuff like that oh, cool. to get tea and stuff. But his that seemed like a different different episode. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to tell you about David Douglas, who is another Scot, um, and he's actually the Douglas of the Douglas fir. Oh, so, cool. Um, he was, his discoveries peaked after being sent to North America in 1823. So he's acting about 100 years earlier yeah. than George Forrest. Um, and he was one of the first people to go and do the Canadian Rockies. And I thought you might find him interesting because he did. He actually um, was one of the first people to trek through Oregon, Washington, California, British Columbia. Very cool. Um, he went out there with people who were doing exploration, not necessarily plant hunting. So he was kind of tacked onto okay. a... A team. A team. Yeah. To do the plant hunting job. Um, and he was killed on his way back to Scotland. However... Like in the in, in North America? America? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so he had been doing these hikings, and during this period, he... Um, he was described as a, he had gone from being this like great explorer to being a fair florid Scotsman of about 48 years of age. He had lost a lot of his money by drinking. Mm -hmm. um, he wrecked his canoe in Columbia. Devastating. Um, and he lost all of his specimens and notebooks. He finally made it to Hawaii, which is where he was heading. Um, in 1833 and broke, drunk, and a kind of a shell of a man. He still managed to hike uh, Kia, Maua Loa, and Kialua. He was the first person to hike those three mountains in Hawaii in three months. <laughs> so, I mean, the descriptions of him, he was also missing an eye. Oh, wow. Like, I don't know. I just feel like he would be someone that I'd like to be friends with. Yeah, I think that both of them are sound very, very Very, very cool. But for very different reasons. Yeah, unfortunately, he was found dead in a cattle pit. Doug, in Hawaii. In Hawaii, Doug, not far from the home of a convict named Ned Gurney. Mm. 
It is not known whether he fell into the pit or whether he was murdered and then the cattle, he was under a cow, um, whether the cattle was thrown on top of him to try and disguise it or whether he just fell in it. Yeah. Um, some claim that Gurney was spotting following Douglas on the day that he died. When they did find his body, there was no money on him and things like that. Um, and actually, some say that Gurney spoke of killing him on his deathbed. Um, Douglas is buried in Honolulu. Mm. And there are a lot of plants that he's found that are planted around where he was buried. He died in 1884. So, wow. Um, like 20 years wait, before. That cannot be right. No, that cannot be right. He reached Hawaii in 1833. Okay. And described by one witness as fair, florid Scotsman, about 48 years of age. Oh, he, he was, would have been 94. He was only, eight, but he was at that point only 31. Okay. So, would have been like 85. Yes. Yeah, so he's not hiking mountains and dying in a cattle pit. Mm hmm. Never know. All right. Anyway, <laughs> that was. A very well, anyway. fact check that. Sorry, should have fact checked that before I read it, but I didn't <laughs> no, do the math. I'm, I'm saying someone else do it. No, I mean I, 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 I this was me pulling from several different sources, mm. so maybe they just didn't match up. Anyway, that was my thing on plant hunters. Oh, cool. That was abrupt. <laughs> yeah, the George Forrest, the, the 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 segments that you read from his letter were enthralling. I mean, seriously, he's a very good writer. Yeah, and. It's kind of surprising as well that there aren't, like, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any like popular Hollywood productions about plant hunters. Although it sounds like it very easily could be. Yeah. Like that could have very easily been a movie. So, um, and he was, by the way, also a phenomenal photographer. Mm. Like at the time he hated that he, he wasn't a drawer. Like yeah. it was a thing that botanists would draw plants and yeah. things like that. He didn't like that. So he used to take photography equipment yeah. with him everywhere. But he's actually, it turns out he was a phenomenal photojournalist. Oh. Because... He has produced tons of photos of his travels of China at this point. Is he buried in China or did they bring him back I, They to buried Scotland? him in China, I think. And he had done a ton of really, really amazing photography about the different people that he ran across and the different things that they had to do, like the photos of the mules moving mm. and the plants that he saw and the people that he worked with. And his photography is really, really great. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I did him justice, but I... <laughs> well, it, le it leaves it open for people to go... Do I don't think work. I could do him justice. Like, No, it sounds like he lived a pretty incredible... Yeah, I life. oh, and like the first trip he went out on, he nearly died from malaria. The dude died nearly like... <laughs> nearly died a lot. Nearly died a lot. I just went with the one that had the personal letter because I thought the way he described it and his terror and his... Yeah. Was, it was compelling. Good. It was really, really good. Um, yeah. But the dude... Nearly died a hell of a lot and kept going back out and hunting. Yeah. I think my my biggest problem that I had yeah. was why. Mm. Now, I would love it if there's a botanist or someone who listens to this. Yeah. Maybe that's a weirdly specific maybe. job description. But if someone could tell me, like, why it was so important or is so important that these people continue to risk their lives to find new species of plants. Mm. I am sure that there must have been amazing scientific discoveries made from the plants that people found. Yeah. Maybe they're still continuing to make amazing scientific discoveries from the plants that people found. But I have issues with NASA <laughs> because I'm always a bit like, do we really need to do those things? Mm. 
Like, it seems like a lot of money and a lot of yeah. death for to explore space. Mm. Um, and when you read about how many botanists genuinely, like, I pulled a few examples, but mm. they're all dying everywhere. Yeah. From heart attacks, from falling down cliffs, from terrorism, from... I mean, it seems like a job that really risks your life. Mm. I want to know why. People place a lot of stock on discovery. Yeah. Like we do as a society, we place a lot of stock on, on discovery and advancement. Yeah, and Forrest, it's how, I think it said he's found 31,000 new species. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of plants. But then it's like, how many of those are actually, how many of those are useful for, for things, for, yeah. for medicine or for, you know? Yeah, I mean, I know he didn't have family and things like that, but like... I mean, I'm assuming people cared about him and how it must have felt every time he went out. And I'm wondering whether the back. people that loved him felt that the was worth it. Was worth it. Yeah, hard to say. Yeah, and, hard to say. And I actually, there are some really pretty cool plant hunters still plant hunting now, mm. um, writing books and things like that. And I did think it'd be very cool if I reached out to a couple and maybe they could come on and oh, explain it to us. Yeah, um, very cool. There's an American guy who's doing where. You don't remember where? I don't remember. I just remember reading it and thinking uh, this was towards the end because I really wanted to do the kind of earlier period of plant hunting mm. when it was a bit more, I don't know. I was about was to say a, a bit more dangerous. Well, I mean, it was it's probably a bit more, because um, I mean, like in the 1800s and surely in the early 1900s, those areas like like China wasn't a super well-known area. No, it was very time, mysterious. Um, yeah. No, and I mean, like we, I've talked about in the past, uh, for phone calls are phenomenal for obviously for getting people information much quicker, but from a historian's point of view, mm. a lot is lost without letter writing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see if we can, if we could find some of those journals on, on Amazon or something and just read them. Through. Yeah. Because we, I've found, I have found very frequently that in the, in the, the brief research that we do for these episodes, because obviously we don't dive super heavily no. into our topics, but I we frequently come across literature that is either a byproduct of what we talk about or is the reason why the topic we're talking about is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I always want to dive a bit more into that, especially like I would like if that that letter that he's written has ever been published anywhere. I would love to read. So that, that's like eight days of his life. Yeah, and it and is published. It's on the RGBE website. website. Yeah, so that's where I pulled it from. I think that would be very, um, very cool to read. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And like I said, his photos are really great. Like that, his this that whole era where photography and letter writing kind of mm. meshed before yeah. it became photography and phone calls. And mm. you do wonder how much like how much heart is going to get lost. Like, I think facts are being recorded much better now, obviously. Yeah. But I wonder a more, if... A lot more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah was, it's it's yeah. hard to say, especially when you have someone else, because normally the phone call is... Like, the phone call leads to, like, a transcription that's written about you. It's not something that you write yourself, usually, unless the person yeah. is a journalist or a, dire, a diarist or whatever. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think a lot of character is sort of lost in translation. But... Like I said, those were two Scottish Douglas, um, Douglas and Forrest, are two Scottish, two Scottish plant explorers, and yeah. a lot of them seem to be. And I think so. While these guys are away, my plan is to get a lot of badass babes recorded, which mm. is a podcast that I'm 
launching launching uh the plan is is called badass babes in history and it's just me and it's much more in-depth in women who really should uh, some who are very well known but some women who really haven't got some of the the seriously badass but just haven't got the necessary recognition particularly in the western world Mm -hmm. a lot of the people i'm talking about who have run countries and things like that that you may never have even heard of generally run countries that on English speaking. Right, of course. So I'm doing a lot of research on that, but one of the interesting things I came across with the plant hunters, and I exclusively covered the men for this reason, mm-hmm. is that actually it was a pretty equal... Yeah. Um, uh, It was pretty equal amongst the like, sexes. I feel, a lot of women were out plant hunting at I feel point. like as well, because like it's it was probably a fairly high-risk job, so I'm sure that the number of people who were out doing it was fairly small, which mm-hmm. tends to lead to a... A, probably a more equal yeah so there were quite a lot of women doing this job um like there's always been historically quite a lot of women archaeologists yeah so there are interesting careers that i don't think people realize i look guys i'm not saying that these were genderly equal oh no i'm not saying it was 50 50 or whatever i'm saying that you could do it and yeah. a couple of women did do it yeah well, they obviously didn't receive, I'm sure they didn't receive as much of the recognition. For no, them. and I'm sure they weren't allowed to go to the Yuman districts of oh, no. China and get... No, I don't think that there would have been many women in the East no. during these expeditions. At least not in the late 1800s, early yeah. 1900s. Yeah, so it's interesting. Anyway, that was me, Very. and I'm sorry if it was a bit... No, it just it just sort of ended, and I was like, I want to hear more about the plant hunters. I know, I know, but I just, it was, I actually was going to do a little bit on everyone, and then I read that letter from Forrest, and I was like, no, that's just too cool. Yeah, super cool. Okay. All right, we're good. So uh, I kind of went back to our, our roots a little bit. Ha, 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 plant, <sighs> plant, humor. And I'm going to talk about the Madagascar tree. Okay. Um, Which you said you had never heard of, which is great, because this is a really cool sort of, Bit of bit of bit of lore. Okay, cool. Um, from an area of the world I don't think we've covered, Madagascar, like the area no, near really. Madagascar. Um, right. So the first instance instance of the Madagascar tree was in an, in an article written by Edmund Spencer for the New York World on April twenty sixth, eighteen seventy four. Okay, so we're both in the same era. Same, same sort of era. Yeah. And the title of the article was Crinoida Dagina, the Man Eating Tree of Madagascar. Cool. And it reported a letter written by Carl Leek Leecha. Actually, I do know what you're... Okay. I do know. I just didn't know that was what it's who, called. Who um, was an eminent bo- German botanist. Mm-hmm. And he's writing a letter to his friend, Dr. Amelia Omelius Friedlowski, another okay. German scientist, about the Makoto tribe and their sacrifice to the, the man-eating tree yeah. of Madagascar. So the... The article starts out with this description of the tree, and it's described as an eight-foot-tall pineapple. Basically sits on its end, but doesn't have any any of the leaves or the, the things of the pineapple. Okay. So prickly bits of a pineapple. I guess it's just the shape of a pineapple. Yeah. Uh, with brown bark that is as hard as iron, and around the top, from the top of the, the top of the pineapple shape are eight, 11 to 12-foot-long leaves. They hang down to the floor, and on the concave part of the leaf... It's covered in sort of thorny hooks. Mm-hmm. At the top of the tree, there's sort of a bowl, a concave mm-hmm. bowl, and it has a very clear, uh, sticky liquid in, in the top. Lovely. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's what you love to hear um, when you talk about plants, I guess. 
there were also tentacles that stuck out, sort of like uh, palpi, I think is the the, the, bot, the botanical term for them. They're just sort of like tendrils, I think. Okay. I think. Uh, and they purportedly stuck out from the underside of the rim. And they were also covered with the, the sort stuff. of the sticky, thorny hooks. And Leecha describes a sacrifice performed by this, this tribe. And he says that a young woman was forced to drink from the the rim from the, the to drink the fluid in the in the plant and that the slender palpi of the tree came to life quivered and seized her around her neck and arms she screamed but the tendrils gripped her tighter strangling her until her cry, cries became a gurgled moan the contraction of the tendrils caused the fluid of the tree to stream down its trunk mingling with the blood and viscera of the victim graphic it sort of like engulfed her and then the, the the men of the tribe ran forward and they they drank the fluid and then apparently it just sort of commenced a, a massive orgy, which is how Western people always write about Africa <laughs> whenever they write about African tribes. Um, they did this, and then there, and was, then there was an, an orgy. orgy. It's like, of course there was. That totally makes sense. Leecha says in his letter to Friedlowski that he hangs out in Madagascar for three weeks to examine this tree. He doesn't witness any more sacrifices. He does say that at several instances it tries to eat lemurs that get a bit too close to it. And that when he went back a few days after the sacrifice, um, there was only a skull left. So that's all very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what's very interesting about this is that none of these people existed. Funny that. <laughs> there is no evidence that Carl Leecha ever existed, that Dr. Omelia uh, Sridlowski existed, and the Makoto tribe isn't even a tribe that exists in, in Africa let alone Madagascar. It was a fairy tale. It was not. It's not real. It's one of those things. Who knows why it was written, but we're going to dig into it a little bit. Um, okay. I read an article called Answering a Question About a Tale of Human Sacrifice to a Tree. It was written by Michael Pollock for the New York Times, um, and he sort of breaks down the why? deal. So in August 8th, so what's really interesting about this is in August 1888, so 20, no, 14 years after the original article was yeah. written, the New York current literature does an expose on Edmund Spencer. Okay. And they say, Mr. Spencer was a master was a master of the horrible, some of his stories approaching closely to those of Poe. So he was just, he was a journalist, but he was basically just a horror writer okay. as well. So this reminds me a bit of the War of the, it's Ben's phone, but I don't think it's picking up. Okay. This reminds me a bit of the, um, the sort of War of the Worlds thing mm -hmm. you, you know about the yeah, yeah, yeah they read the story over the air with sound effects yeah and people got super freaked yeah. out and believed aliens were actually attacking mm -hmm. the planet so this is a very similar sort of situation what's super weird is i was trying to find edmund spencer to see if i could read this article first hand first hand but it's yeah. tough to find copies of articles written in the late 1800s yeah. obviously because original copies of them wouldn't have made it yeah. to the time when we were able to photocopy yeah. things. There is no other evidence of Edmund Spencer as a person, as a journalist, as uh, as a person living. There was a, a man... There's no other writings by him? No. There was a man named Edmund Spencer, and he's a British poet, but he was writing in the 1400s, 1500s. So, it so the New York like... Times wrote an article about a man... Who there's no actual evidence for existing. No, so Wait. Edmund Spencer wrote an article for the New York World, which I'm I'm wondering if it was a bit like the uh, 
what is it, what are the tabloids called in the state National Enquirer? Okay. I wonder if it was a bit like mm-hmm. that, and it just sort of got so Edmund Spencer wrote this article. Yes, and well, and then the New York Times wrote an article about what is commonly known as one of the largest media hoaxes to sort of okay continue into into okay. the twentieth century. But they but they credit him as being a great. Journal, a great story writer like Poe. No, this so that was written in an expose by the New York Current Literature. In oh, okay. Eighty-eight, fourteen years later. Okay. And then, the, then the New York Times is looking into it as a media hoax. Okay, all right. They don't. They don't. They never mention him being like any great author. Okay. But the New York Current Literature says that these stories are very similar to how Poe okay. wrote a story. Although, however, there there's no evidence of him ever writing anything else ever. Uh, let alone existing under this name. Okay. I'm wondering if he just picked it as a moniker because like okay. Edward Spencer was a well-known English poet. Okay. In the 1500s, 1400s, but he was a fan, and he just yeah. But for some right. reason, this story, and it it can. Cont- That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um. And this story has sort of inspired people up into the 20th century to try to find this truth. Yeah, because people don't let these things go. No. So that expose came out. Fake in, news, in, people. In 1888, and it was just l- largely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't actually sort of come back into the forefront of of this not being. I mean, people were like very skeptical, obviously, of a man eating tree because it's never been seen anywhere else, anywhere yeah. else at any other time. Um, so people were obviously already very skeptical yeah. of it. But this sort of didn't come back into the forefront until the 21st century, when you could read the copy of the expose okay. online, and that's when the New York Times article came out. Okay. So people who went to Madagascar to find this plant. We're talking about them a little bit. Okay. Frank Vincent uh, wrote a book called Actual Africa, and he didn't go specifically to find the tree, but he was asking around. He asked around to a bunch of the locals, and he he believes that the belief in the tree is the purest form of Munchausenism. Munchausen being the it's sickness by proxy. Yeah. You believe that you're or you believe that you're sick because people tell you that you're yeah. sick. Um, so you so believe, you believe in, the in the tree because, because people, people tell, tell you, you to believe in yeah. the tree. So he didn't believe in it. Okay. I will. I will say that even in the 1800s, people were like, "Man, this tree probably doesn't exist." Okay. But for some reason, the story continued to be printed. People kept talking about it. It inspired expeditions. It's literally why we do this podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Chase Salmon Osborne was a former governor of Michigan from okay. 1911 to 1913, and he wrote a book called "Madagascar: Land of the Man-Eating Tree," which he did admit later in his life to just be clickbait. Like, I just uh-huh. called it that so people would buy my book. This is basically Slender Man before Slender Man. Sort of. Yeah, it is a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not as much out, not not nearly as proliferated into society, but because well, yeah. the internet didn't exist yeah. yet. He said in his book, in traveling from one end of Madagascar to the other, a thousand miles and across the great island, many tra- times traversing the nearly 400 miles of breadth, I did not see a man-eating tree. Because, of course, you wouldn't. Because they don't exist. It doesn't exist. But he did say that the missionaries denied its existence, but of course they would because their goal there is to destroy everything that fosters demonism and idolatry. So you can't, they can't be credible sources because that's their job. Yeah. It's fair. Yeah. He said he mostly wrote the book to shed a light on a part of the world that he felt people didn't really know about. And that I he don't used, really know about it either. And he used the title of the book to sort of draw people in to learn more about yeah. the book. That, that place. Ralph Linton was another explore, exploratory guy, and he said that he encountered several persons who believed that such a thing existed, but the tree was always in another part of the country. 
and he arrived at the conclusion that the story was a myth. Okay. Captain V. de la Motte Hurst, in August of 1932, led an expedition for the Royal Geographical Society to find the tree. Oh, he was a plant hunter. So, so the Brits were like, go find this tree. Because if insane. it exists, we want it. This is absolutely insane. He said, I have been told by many chiefs of the island, and I have no doubt of its existence. It eats human beings, but since the natives worship it, they are reluctant to reveal its location. And he actually planned to lead another expedition with a camera crew to go find it, but they never left for a second expedition. Oh, okay. So a lot of the people who believed it, I think the the RGS was probably like, mm, this tree doesn't exist. Like yeah. we're not giving, we're not financing, we're not financing this, again. this again. And even into the 1950s, uh, again, this is Willie Lee. He didn't lead an expedition. Okay. And he didn't even go to Madagascar. Oh, okay, good for him. What he did was thorough research he, there, much he, like us on this podcast. He followed the bibliograph the bibliographic mentions of this tree to see if he could prove its existence. Oh, okay. By like, going far back enough, yeah. could he find the original like, source, like a folklore or like a yeah. written a written yeah, yeah. tale about this tree? And he also came to the conclusion that it was a hoax because, of course, it is. Because it's, it's a, a man eating tree. <laughs> He said, of course the man-eating tree does not exist. There is no such tribe. The actual natives of Madagascar do not have such a legend. But at one time, someone made up the hoax, which was put into the only existing local magazine, possibly as a joke or for some kind of amusement. Uh, and he attributed it to the Anatananamino Annual and Madagascar Magazine for the year in 1881. So he incorrectly attributed it to that instead of the writing in 1874 by Edmund. Okay. Whatever his name was, whose whose name I've already forgotten, Edmund Spencer. Yeah. Um, the non-existent man. The non-existent man, apparently. The what's kind of cool about this is it sort of influenced more stories about vampiric plants, like George Orwell. Yeah. Not George Orwell. Orson Welles. Orson one, Welles. The one okay, who wrote yeah. War of the Worlds. Yeah. Also wrote a book about a vampiric plant. Okay. Um. So it's sort of, and I think even like Little Shop of Horrors. Probably yeah. At some yeah. Yeah. Point is. Inspired by a man-eating tree. Um, I mean, I guess it's one of those things that's... I don't know that I've ever thought of it, but slightly is ingrained in culture. Man-eating trees? Yeah, because we do have fly... Venus fly traps. traps. And that's what a lot of, like, the actual botanists who talk about this tree, they're like, mm -hmm. obviously, like, the Venus flytrap exists, but this is clearly just a fabrication. Do they have a, a, uh, an insect eating... Do they have carnivorous trees in Madagascar? Yes, I do believe that they... Okay, so for the first person, it wouldn't be a massive jump to watch one of them eat... A bug. A couple of bugs. Yeah. I mean, it is a massive jump, let's be clear. <laughs> but... I, I don't think that there exists a plant that's big enough, that, that is also carnivorous, you know, to even eat, like, a, a small marsupial or rodent. Or I don't even think those exist. I'm pretty yeah. sure they don't. I didn't do any research about that. Mr. Botanist person that we spoke to earlier. <laughs> or Mrs. Botanist. Or Mrs. Botanist. Or, or however, you, however you choose to identify botanist. Uh, so another one of these vampiric plants in October 1891, Mr. Dunstan, I didn't find a first name. He's only ever described as Mr. Dunstan, was a British nat naturalist, not a British nationalist. I almost say that every single time I say Two very different things. He wrote about a vampire vine in Nicaragua. He was out doing some plant hunting, I can only assume. Yeah. Um he was with his dog. I'm telling you, plant hunting, like legit career choice in the early yeah. 1900s. Yeah, and he heard his dog yelping in the distance, yeah. and he ran over to find it encased in vines, and he pulled his knife out to, to cut it out, and he was horrified to see that when he pulled the dog out that it was covered in its own blood, and that bits of its skin looked like 
like not only had it been cut, but that it had actually been like puckered, like it had been okay. sucked on. That's like the only instance of that vine. Okay. What's really cool about about these plants is the sort of the artwork that's that in, that's inspired by yeah. them. So if you look up the man eating plant of Madagascar, what you get is a picture of a plant called Yateveo, which means I see you, which is what they named the plant, which is horrifying. And it is just like uh, it's like an upside. We, we'll probably use it for the yeah, the cover art the or cover for up. the uh, Instagram. Um, it is just a pineapple with these horrible wriggling. It's sort of Lovecraftian in its okay. in its definition. The sort of uh, so otherworldly that your brain almost can't imagine something like that. I think it's interesting. I, I mean, honestly, this topic botany is a topic we just kind of randomly came up with because we wanted to do something a bit different. Yeah. Um. It's much more interesting than I thought it would be. Well, there's so much more to it. Yeah. So I think I, I occasionally get wrapped up in, like, the gardening is so boring. How the heck can you do anything else with plants other than, like, put roses in your garden to look at them because they're pretty? Um, obviously, that's completely discussed. I think that was a little swipe at me and my rose garden. <laughs> that's completely <laughs> that's completely different from, like, the value that I see in people being able to grow their own food. Yeah. Like obviously, there's nothing wrong. And medicine. With, nothing wrong with roses because they are pretty to look at. Like there's, but like the the sort of like swashbuckling, adventurous who found who found go, these plants in Madagascar. Into, yeah. Going to Madagascar, going to China, yeah. and like not only like risking your lives with uh, I make mean, maybe a group of people who don't particularly want you to be there, but like just being in the woods, like uncharted territory for that amount of time is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And very attractive in a way that I didn't think I would. No, I find. mean, like I would those, think about this topic. I don't know how much we've really talked about your background. I don't think very much on this podcast. No, so Adam is in fact a journalist. Yes, and officially now because of this podcast. And now officially because of this podcast, but he also has he went to school for journalism, yeah. and he hated it. So he went for a walk, and when I say went for a walk, he <laughs> walked from. Uh, those that are in America and know what it is, the Appalachian Trail, for those that aren't in America and don't know what it is, he basically walked from the bottom of America to the top of America on the East Coast, mm -hmm. which is 1,200 miles? 2,200. 2,200 miles. more than what you just said. And uh, yeah. a fraction of what he's going to walk <laughs> next week. Um, So he is definitely somebody... That is not afraid to go into the deep dark that's woods the, that's and stuff. The, that's the thing is like I what I would describe as the deep dark wood, woods. I'm sure that people like George Forrest or Douglas would be like you're you're an absolute coward. Yeah, you're hiking <laughs> along a well worn trail <laughs> yeah, with uh, with, that, with hundreds of other with like people yeah. around you and stuff. Um, but I do I do I, I honestly I find some of these things kind of I mean they are indulgent. I do stuff that's mm. indulgent all the time. I go ride my horse every day. Yeah. Like. Hiking the Appalachian Trail is an indulgent Absolutely. exercise. Um, yes, it requires fortitude and strength and commitment. But it is an, an almost wholly selfish act. Yes. Um, I am interested to know, because mm. I know it's not an indulgent exercise going plant hunting. No, because you are doing it sort of for the betterment of... But I am slightly interested. But honestly, uh, the guy who was stealing tea made quite a lot of money on it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a... No, that was, was an enterprise. There was an enterprise element to it, too. Um, but I'm interested as to how big the economy could possibly be for a new iris or a new orchid. I don't or, know. It's I, interesting, I, yeah. It's, it's not something we're going to get into on this podcast no, unless just, someone wants to come and tell us about it. There must be people who are, you know, 
I, like maybe people are still buying like the like ancient orchid or like iris bulbs or what was orchids that would tulips tulips yeah like i want the i want like the, yeah it's just interesting because i know it's not a wholly indulgent exercise no but i want to know why it's not mm. yeah i don't know because i'm not a botanist and really the only interest that i have in the botany is well the plant exploring because I hear, and this is just me, I hear there's a man-eating tree in Madagascar. Now, say even I believe there's a man-eating tree in Madagascar, none of me thinks we need to go find the man-eating tree in Madagascar. No. I mean, maybe you could weaponize it? I mean, maybe. But to me, it seems like... <laughs> That's like... It seems like there's a lot of people hunting for this man-eating tree. Yeah, and like, who's financing this? Like, I, I wonder if a yeah. lot of them are... I wonder if any of them are independently wealthy or if they are just, like, sort of... I think this is the period of life where adventurers were independently wealthy. No, government uh, subsidized. no uh, earlier than this, I think they were independently wealthy. In the 1800s. And then by about that point, some of them started to get government subsidies, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You know, it is really interesting. Okay. Um, so that... Is sort of uh, vampiric plants. Cool. Um, it the the man-eating tree of Madagascar. It's it, it it's interesting in the fact that the story was created because I like horror stories. I think that yeah. I think that they serve a very important yeah. literary purpose. But I also think that it's interesting that as a hoax, which was largely panned as being a hoax, it's sort of stuck around for a really really long time. Like for nearly like for seventy years, like a hundred years nearly, people were still like reporting on this, like. Not that I, it was real, but that they were they were still like published, like reprinting the article, and people were still going to Madagascar to try to find it. I think it seems more unusual because I mean, certainly we looked at like dragons and yeah. unicorns, and there are still people in Nessie. Mm. I mean, there's still a lot of these things that people are hunting hundreds of years later. I mean, look even earlier, and you look got stuff that people have been hunting for thousands of mm. years i think this one's a little rarer because it seems like it's almost more modern and in america and therefore people should know better yes yeah well that's the thing is like every 10 i feel like every decade or so there's some discovery and people are like no dragons definitely existed we found a skull with horns on and it's a dragon and then i mean like, look at yetis yeah people are hunting the yeti mm. yeah i think this is i think this is it's one of those things where it's like and i'm not saying this is correct but like people always look like Explorers always talk about like the mysticism of Africa when they yeah, were exploring. Absolutely. And so this is, I think that's just, it's just yeah. a tie, tied into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that. And now I'm going to sort of switch it up a little bit to a more recent hoax. Okay. The spaghetti tree hoax. You Okay. So I really, I do realize I had heard about the Madagascar one. I have no idea what the spaghetti okay, tree is. That's interesting is. because this was on BBC. Okay. Um, it was on like the primary BBC channel in the 1950s, which is interesting because now we're getting into a tree hoax that exists in the 50s at the same time that people are looking for the man-eating tree in Madagascar. Okay. The BBC uh, ran a show called Panorama. Panorama's a huge Is it still show. going on? Uh, I think so at points, but it was... It's it, a current affairs program. Huge. And at the time, there was a man who was the producer of it, and I think his name was De Jaeger. Okay. And he was, uh, when he was a student at Austria, a teacher would tell him and his other classmates quite frequently, boys, if you were, boys, you are so stupid that you would believe it if I told you spaghetti grew on trees. Okay. So he would go on to get a job as the program producer at okay. the BBC. He thought, hey, it's April Fool's Day. Let's do an expose on spaghetti trees. Okay. And so the it sort of covered a... Big air quotes, obviously, covered a family in southern Switzerland who were harvesting spaghetti from a tree. 
And one of the quotes from the clip, they ran like a three minute okay. um, little video of yeah. this spaghetti farming family. On Panorama. Yeah. On Panorama. Which okay, is, so Panorama, very, very well respected yes, TV like show. huge. Um, it, yeah. it said that he didn't even tell his bosses that they were going to run it okay. in case they said, we can't run this because we run a current affairs mm-hmm. program. Okay. Uh, there was one quote that says, after picking, the spaghetti is laid out to dry in the warm alpine air. Many people are very puzzled by the fact that spaghetti is produced in such uniform lengths. This is the result of many years of patent endeavor by plant breeders who succeeded in producing the perfect spaghetti. Good. Um, what I didn't realize, because this was obviously an April Fool's Day uh-huh. joke, was how many people would call into the BBC to ask how to grow spaghetti. Because <laughs> in the 1950s, didn't know the spaghetti was not a very common thing in the UK. Oh, really? Yeah, they, like people didn't realize that you could just use wheat flour and water to make noodles. Um, wow. And that, and that, okay. And that it was people were eating tinned spaghetti and sauce, and it was sort of seen as like a delicacy. I don't know if this is like a period of recovery from the. It's 1957, so it's not like it post-war. Is, it is post-war. Yeah, but it's not like it's not post-war. No, so it's my. Like, and like we, the Brits were interacting with Italians at this point. Yes. And like, why were the Swedes? Why were Swedish people the people harvesting the spaghetti? Well, I think the whole point was the story was supposed to be so ridiculous that no one would, no believe, one would believe it. it. But uh, hundreds of viewers called in um, to ask how they could harvest their own spaghetti trees, and the the sort of general response was: this is sort of what you would get in an email if you emailed yeah. the BBC now to ask them how to grow a spaghetti tree. It said, place a sprig of spaghetti and a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. Do me a favor. Mm. Can you email the BBC and ask them how to make? I, yeah, I'll email the, the the producer of Panorama and see if if I can ask how to how to grow a spaghetti how tree. How to grow a spaghetti tree? I just thought it was funny. It's I I Google I literally last night Google searched legendary plants to figure mm-hmm. out what I was gonna do. Yeah. I, I found the Madagascar man eating tree, and like right underneath that was like other media tree hoaxes. Yeah. It was like the spaghetti tree hoax. Um, That's kind of cool. It's just really funny. And what I find funny about it is, like, it's a very clearly satirical. It's a very English humor thing to do. Yes. To say that spaghetti grows on trees in Sweden. Yes. For those that don't realize, uh, there was a movement probably about 20 years ago. The Flying Spaghetti Monster? No. Oh, that's a thing as well, yeah. Well, that's a um, thing. But there was a movement about 20 years ago where they put religion on the census. You had to identify your religion on the oh, census. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, the whole of England got together and wrote in... Jedi. Jedi. <laughs> uh, so now, actually, I think it's the third biggest religion in the UK officially. It's listed, it's listed on the Wikipedia website as well, like under like religions most practiced in the UK. Yeah, yeah, Jedi. Um, um, so England are pretty good at like getting together for these things. Well, they did the Bodie McBoat face. Yes, thing name. Too. We had to name a. Was a there was HMS a competition ship, for it? naming a naval ship, and Bodie McBoat face became the winning. God, I hate it, but it's so funny. But it's so British. It's so British. Um. And I just love that this this hoax, very clearly satirical, very obviously English humor, was happening at the same time that William Lee was like doing bibliography, like trying to prove <laughs> that the ma- the man eating tree in Madagascar didn't exist. Um, I didn't realize that that was a thing. I wonder how many of those people in the 1950s were ringing in to ask how to grow spaghetti just trees for fun, just to play in. I'm on sure. The I'm sure it was a few. I'm sure a few people. I'll have. To... I'm sure that less people believed it. That, you know, like... That both believed it. Yeah, obviously. I'm sure... How funny. I wonder if the segment's still available online. You you can watch it. Oh, you can? Yeah, it was on... um, It was on whatever website I was reading the article about. So you can go watch, like, the three-minute clip. And it is, like, they just grabbed some local woman and had her dress up in, like, very traditional... uh, Not Icelandic. Yeah, no, Swedish. Oh, 
Yeah. Did I say Switzerland or did I say Sweden? I think I said Sweden. Oh, Switzerland, yeah. Sorry, traditional Swiss. Swiss garb. So like Lederhosen and yeah. the funny dresses and stuff. Not funny in that. Just they are funny. <laughs> um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Dig your hole. In very, Dig your hole. In very traditional uh, Swiss yeah. dress and just had them picking. And then the, 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 like it was very cheap to produce, obviously, because it was just spaghetti. And so the cast and crew were all rewarded with a spaghetti feast. Lovely. At the end of the video. Um, yeah, that's... I, I, I read uh, it and I was like, this is the Englishest thing that could ever have been Englished. One of the plant hunters I was reading about, he was really into rockeries. Like, that was he was credited with starting, like, rock gardens mm. in the UK. So he'd go, obviously, to Switzerland and places a lot okay. to go and get different rockery plants. Anyway, he decided one day there was a cliff face near where he lived in North Yorkshire that was fairly unreachable. So he took a shotgun and shotgunned <laughs> a whole load of seeds across the cliff face, <laughs> put them into cartridge pellets, and just fired oh, wow. them at the, at the cliff That's face amazing. to see whether any of them rooted. Was he successful? No. Ah, oh, shame. But he did. Uh, he did do a lot of rockeries and stuff. He was one of my. He was probably my second or third choice of person to talk about. Okay. Um, we will talk about more plant hunters in the future. Yeah, I believe he dr- potentially drunk himself to death. Okay. Um, Seems to be a common thing with with, with plant with hunters. Plant hunters. There was certainly one of them that was supposed to have been in a remote town in Burma, I think, and died. And I think they came back and said, "Oh, he died from." something that was fairly all right to die from. And then later it came out that he was just like legitimately drunk himself to death. But the guy that if this, if this is the same guy, I'm sorry, if it's a different plant hunter, I'm sorry to, I don't know who I could possibly offending by getting plant hunters mixed up. But the guy from North Yorkshire, he also built a rock garden at Oxford, I believe. Mm. Um, And he, yeah, he's, he's, his garden's still up there. You can still see some of the hydrangeas that he found. He went to Japan a lot. Okay. Yeah, interesting guy too. Can't remember his name because I didn't write it down. <laughs> I don't remember. I'm not good with names. I remember, like, I can read tons of information and mm. remember the information. Cannot remember the names <laughs> of the people that it's attributed to. It's true. All right, so next week you're doing Cadrian's Wall. Yes. And I may do Hampton Court, okay. which would involve me having to do all the research. Zero research. The research again from, from your... Zero research. I can just read out my dissertation. Um which would be the easiest week for me ever. So maybe I'll do that yeah. or maybe I'll find something new because I actually quite like learning the new things. Yeah, that's fun. Um, but maybe we'll do monuments. Maybe. I could do Stonehenge. I don't have to do any research for that either. I've already done that. Yeah, different podcasts though. But I got lots of, I got lots of research to do while you guys are away. Yeah. I'm Thanks. excited. Thanks for listening, guys. All right, wish Adam luck for me. Good luck, Adam. Thank you. All right, Goodbye. bye.